So we find ourselves in Acts 16. Wow, that's really small print. Hope you can read it better than I can. Let's do a review before we jump into Acts 16. Let's do a review of Acts 15 because there's people who weren't here. Maybe you forgot over. It's been a long seven days, I understand. But let's go through these and you guys just shoot your hand up or just shout the answer out. Um, what are the four or five requirements placed on Gentiles in Acts 15? Did I get that? So I remember. Say it again. No, that was actually, remember they said, no, that's not immediate, not immediate anyways. Yeah. yeah. Don't eat food offered to idols. Yeah, things that have been strangled. What else? Yeah, stay away from, from fornication, sexual immorality. No blood. Don't consume blood. And that might sound really foreign to you, but guys, I mean, I was in Uganda the first time I visited Uganda. I said, how many of you ever drinking blood before? A good 15 to 25% of them raised their hands. They drank blood. And these are like teenagers in Uganda just a few years ago. All right, we got one more. What was another kind of unspoken expectation? To be in Shabbat and to hear Moses read. What is Moses' code word for? The Torah. Yeah, so those are kind of like the five things implied, the fifth one being implied, that you're supposed to be there and assimilating into that culture. Uh, was this was the list intended to be exhaustive? No. no. Remember I said, what's not on the list? Well, we don't have murder. We don't have stealing. We don't have coveting. There's a lot of things not on that list. So that implies that the list is not exhaustive. There's just four starting points. Here you go. Get in the door. Have table fellowship with an observant or orthodox Jew. And then you begin to learn other elements of the lifestyle. Who were the two great rabbis of the first century BC who had significant influence over the Jewish and Gentile relations, specifically how they, how they, how they are converted into the Jewish faith? Anybody remember them? Yeah, Hallel and Shammai. Shammai. And who, which of these did Paul likely follow or did he learn a lot of his, his theology from? Hallel. Remember, Hallel was the grandfather of Gamliel. Gamliel was the teacher of Paul. Right? True or false? There has been a lot of seismic shifts so far in the book of Acts and a, a clear push to abandon the Old Testament and to start a new faith grounded exclusively on the New Testament. It's false. Why is it false? There is no such thing as the New Testament yet. Yeah, it's not there. It's not a part of their Bible. It's called the New Testament. How many Pauline letters have been written up until this point? A big fat zero. Zero. Paul's not going to write one of his letters until we get to Acts uh, chapter 18, where he writes First and Second Thessalonians. So far, zero letters have been written. All right. From where and from whom is the governance of the movement or the way emanating? James and where? Jerusalem. And we, have, we seem to have this council, what has later become called the Jerusalem Council, okay? But it's not in the Bible, but it's a good appropriate name, I think, because they're in Jerusalem and they're a council of leaders comprised mainly of the first apostles and the early disciples of our master, okay? And they're there, in the governance of this movement is emanating from them. They have what we would say in, in uh, halak, uh, rabbinic, uh, rabbinic terms, halakhic authority, which means if a question comes to them on how to walk out a commandment or a question comes to them about what to do with the Gentiles, this Jerusalem council has authoritative decision-making powers. They're like the, the, the high court of our movement, so to speak. So that, that's very important. You're going to see they're going to come up again here in the Acts 19 and Acts 20, 21. We'll see that as, as well. Uh, what is the Greek word used to describe a group of people 
who are unified in purpose and identity. God, Ecclesia, very good. Ecclesia, Lisa. Just an observation. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the main focuses last week was how they were dividing off and this mm-hmm. was all that and this was all that. And this brings us together yeah. in, in unity with God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you could walk by many synagogues and there is a not a hundred percent obviously, but there is a high degree of overlap between what we pray here and what what would be prayed Gosh, I've been to Messianic synagogues in Uganda, and same exact prayers are being prayed. Different melodies sometimes, but sometimes the same melodies. Um, so yeah, there's a high degree of unity, so that I could walk into a Messianic synagogue in Iganga, Uganda, and there'd be same prayers, even down to sometimes the same siddur, and so it brings a lot of unity, and that unity brings cohesiveness, and that makes us what the Greek word describes as an ekklesia, a unified a unified group of people in purpose and identity, ecclesia. The Hebrew equivalent for that would be like a kahal, a kahal, okay? All right. Well, I, I found this neat map. I like to share things with you guys like this. But um, does anyone want to guess what the blue outline is? <laughs> the flight pattern of monarch butterflies? <laughs> Travels? Yeah. That is the outline of the Roman Empire. To scale, superimposed over the United States of America. It's a vast empire, isn't it? You see it overhangs both sides of the United States of America and it comes down over to, to Cuba and the Yucatan. That is huge, right? And it, all of their governance is emanating from the city of Rome, which is on the Italian peninsula, which on this map would be on the western side of the, the boot there. But yeah, it goes all the way down into North Africa and you know down into the Middle East and everything. So very diverse empire. And in this empire, it treats Judaism with a lot of respect and allows and tolerates Jews to practice their faith, even though they're monotheistic. So as Christianity comes up, and it's kind of like Judaism, but it's kind of different. (laughs) As it rises in its popularity and its spread over the Roman Empire, Roman governance is going to try to figure out, the Roman governors and and the emperor eventually is going to try to figure out, what do we do with these people? So, Bob, you had a question? Yeah, I was looking at the map there real quick, and I'm like, so Russia was not a part ever of the Roman Empire. Russia nor Scotland. <laughs> yeah. No. And the Scots take great pride in that. They were never conquered by the... Uh... You remember, uh, actually, Emperor Hadrian, much later in, uh, in, in Roman imperial history, built a wall between um, what is now Scotland and Great Britain because he realized these people, these... These Scots, <laughs> they're a problem, and it's called Hadrian's Wall across the, uh, the British Isles, huh? It's a sign of defeat, yeah. But yeah, they were a big threat. But no, yeah, the Russians as well, um, even though it's kind of anachronistic to call them Russians, that, that group of people that became Russia were not ever conquered. And uh, here is a map that we're going to get into with Paul's second missionary journey, as it's become called. Uh, as we look at this map, I want you to try to remember back to the first map I put up a week prior and the week before that. And I want you to tell me what you see different about Paul's second missionary journey. There's two main differences I see compared. And if you have the maps in the back of your Bible, some, sometimes Bibles have Paul's missionary journeys. 
you can look at that and compare them. What two notable differences do you see? Going more north and east. Yeah, that's actually one I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see. But yeah, he's going more north and east. So he's coming up. He's going down from Jerusalem to Antioch. What's another difference that you see? But I know the arrows are really small. The arrows kind of give it away. The direction of travel. If you remember in his first missionary journey, he started in Antioch and they sailed over to Cyprus. And then they went up and they went around that way. They went in a clockwise fashion. In this, this missionary journey, they're going the opposite direction. They're going counterclockwise. What else do we notice about this missionary journey that Paul's about to go on? He went to Greece, which means, yeah, that's correct, it went further out. He's going further west this time. He's actually extending into uh, what, we, what, what was then called the, um, the, uh, the district of Macedonia. Okay? And the Roman Empire had, at its smallest, uh, divided itself into about 46 districts, and one of them being Macedonia. And at a high watermark of the Roman Empire had almost 100 of these districts, and one of them being Macedonia. And so Paul is going to go all the way out there. Now, based on this trajectory, do you think Paul's third missionary journey and fourth missionary, I'm uh, sorry, not, not fourth, and final missionary journey, it's his third one, do you think it will be even farther out? Let's find out. <laughs> well, Paul, another notable difference I see this, Paul is initially starting off and primarily staying landbound. You see here, this long stretch, he's going into what is modern day Turkey. And then he's going to finally get on a boat. And he's going to finally get on a boat there. And then he's going to finally sail back. A lot of this has to do potentially with the season in which he's traveling, the time of year in which he's traveling, and the prevailing winds of those seasons. Because it's a lot easier if the, if the winter winds are blowing to the east, it's a lot easier to hop in a boat that's, you know, that's powered by wind, obviously. And he's traveling east with those prevailing winds. But maybe in the summer, the winds reverse, and it's easier to go to the west. So you've got to take all those things into consideration as you're traveling across the Mediterranean Ocean. And they travel by foot, huh? Many times by foot, yeah, along these Roman roads. Okay, you guys ready to dig into Acts 16? Now that we've, we've reviewed a little bit and we've got our what's going on spatially on the, on the map here. Okay, verse 1. So follow along with me in your Bible if you have one. And then those people who I gave reading slips to, have those ready in your Bible and get ready because you're going to read those here. Use them as a bookmark. It says, Saul, Paul, came down to Derby and went to Lystra, where there lived a disciple called Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who had come to trust. And he had a father who was a Hellenos. All right, which is, maybe your translation says a Gentile or a, a Greek. All the brothers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Saul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and did what's called a Brit Milah because of the Jews living in those areas of circumcision. For they all knew his father had been a Helen, a, uh, a Greek. So this Brit Milah, uh, we've got two options. Either Paul does it himself with Timothy, or they utilize the expertise of someone called a Moyle. A Moyle is a, is a religious leader, sometimes, oftentimes a rabbi, who is specifically trained to perform Brit Milah. On, uh, it's typically uh, babies that are, or male babies that are eight days old. So those are our two options. But we see here that Paul is, uh, is trying to appease uh, the, the, the Jews living in those areas because he's trying to basically say, hey, this guy is legit, and he's with me. He's a full-blown Jew, 
and he has even undergone Brit Milah. But if you look over at, um, I want to examine Timothy's life real quick. If you look over at the, uh, one of Paul's letters to Timothy, um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And I'm going to get somebody to read that for me. 2 Timothy 1, 5. I want to do a little bit of a quick dive into Timothy's life and his backstory and biography. 2 Timothy, you got it? Yeah, just read it nice and loud. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. So there you have it. Timothy has a grandmother who has strong faith. Her name was Lois, and he has a mother who had strong faith as well. Now look at 2 Timothy 3.15. 2 Timothy 3.15. Turn there, and whoever gets it, just read it real, real loud for me. That from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Yeshua. So Timothy had a grandmother and a mother who were strong in their faith, and that he from a child was raised up in scriptures and the knowledge of the scriptures. Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. When you get there, just read it nice and loud for me. Okay, so apparently, thank you, apparently Timothy had a grandmother and a mother who were of strong faith. He was raised up in the faith as a child, knowledgeable of scripture, and then apparently, according to that, someone had prophesied over Timothy at some point, maybe saying, we don't know what the prophecy ex said exactly, or the, the, the words of prophecy spoken over Timothy, that maybe he'd be a great teacher or a leader um, and use in a mighty way for God. We don't know exactly, but that's Timothy's legacy. I just want to kind of Go into his background just a bit before we keep reading. So let's go to verse 4 now. As they went on through the towns, they delivered to the people the decisions that were reached by the apostolos and the presbyterium, or the, the leaders. The, your Bible might say the apostles or the elders in Yerushalayim for them to observe. Accordingly, the ecclesia, the ecclesias were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers day by day. And that's a transitional statement. For Luke, what he's saying is like, I'm ending a section and I'm about to begin a new one. Verse 6, they traveled through the region of Fergia and Galatia because they had been prevented by the Ruach HaKodesh. Again, Luke is ascribing personhood to the Holy Spirit here. From speaking the message in the province of Asia. In verse 7, yeah, we don't know why. That's interesting. Verse 7, when they came to the frontier of Mesia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Yeshua had not let them. So it's interesting here. Is Luke equating the Holy Spirit with the spirit of Yeshua? Or is there a difference? Hmm. Verse 8. So after passing by Mesia, they came down to Troas. Now pay attention. Watch real quick because this is part of your homework. I told you, look at verse 10 and see what you see is different. Verse 9. There was a whole... Uh, there... Um, a horama is the Greek word being used there. It's a partially physical experience. Appear to Shaul at night. A man from Macedonia was standing and begging him, saying, Come to Macedonia and help us. And as soon as he had seen the horama, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia. 
For we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. What did you catch? We. It switches to first person, doesn't it? You see that? First time ever in the book of Acts, 16 chapters. Suddenly Luke now is writing himself into the book. Luke is present. Now some people will say, ah, this says what basically some people will insinuate is that perhaps Luke is the man in the vision. And that Luke is originally from Macedonia. But we don't know. But it's interesting now, Luke is, is writing himself into the text for the first time. Question? It's interesting because we just read that about twice the Spirit preventing them from mm -hmm. doing something. So they yeah. lost no time when now they're having a vision telling them to go something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's very powerful. Yeah, it speaks to the leading and being, being flexible to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 11. So, sailing from Troas, we made a straight run to Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis. And from there, we went to Philippi. Remember that town? That, remember the name of that city? Philippi. Where a Roman colony and the leading city of that uh, city of the part of Macedonia. So, Philippi is the, the, the seat of governance, we could say. And here's a different map. It has more topography associated with it. But this is Philippi right here. Philippi, some estimates say there was about 100,000 residents in this city. So Dothan is what, like 120? I don't know. 70? I don't, I don't know what Dothan is. But maybe a little bit larger now, right? Maybe pushing 100,000? So about Houston County is about 100,000. So Philippi, about the about population of Houston County. And it is the governmental seat for the Roman occupation of this region of Macedonia. Okay? Um, verse 13. Then on Sunday morning... Oh, wait a second. On Shabbat. Yeah. So wait, they're still meeting on Shabbat? Even 15 years, 16 years into the, the movement, they're meeting on Shabbat? We went outside the gate to the riverside where we understood that a, uh, a, like a minion met. A minion is, a, is like a group of people that are coming together to pray. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. She was a dealer in fine purple cloth. And she was, and here's the Greek word, sebomene ton theon, which is a, a person who worships the theon, God. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to what Saul was saying. After she and the members of her household had been immersed, she gave us this invitation. If you consider me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she insisted till we went. So it's interesting here, Lydia is um, a God-fearer, Sable Minos. She's a God-fearing woman. Uh, but when they lead her and share the gospel with her, she accepts the message. And then what is the first thing they do? They immerse her in water, yeah. Uh, and we could, we could maybe assume that it's right there at that river. That river is still there, although it's been mostly drained because right there on the edge of Philippi because of, of uh, the uses of irrigation. There's a lot of farming that goes on right there in that region of Philippi. But it's still there. You can still, and there's actually like, uh, there's, there's um, churches and, and shrines there to Lydia and different things that, that um, the uh, church has put there over, over history. What we're gonna do now is I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and uh, hope this video plays and hope that it plays not too loudly for you. It's a nine minute video I wanted to share with you guys about something before we read on in verse 16 there's something we have to understand about the roman cultic world 
And that is, and some of you may already know about this individual or this person, the Oracle of Delphi. Mm. She was the most powerful woman in the ancient world, the priestess of Apollo, also known as the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle is one of the ways in which the gods manifested their will to humans. Kings, emperors, and generals sought her advice. War started and ended on her council. To the ancient Greeks, she was the voice of God. In Greek mythology, the city of Delphi was the home of the Python, a giant serpent who terrorized humans. The legend says that the Greek god Apollo killed the Python, whose corpse then fell into a large crevice in the earth. Powerful vapors rose up from the crevice, causing hallucinations when they were inhaled. The people of Delphi believed the fumes came from the rotting corpse of the python, and that they gave mortals a way to hear messages from Apollo. Apollo's new god was born uh, to bring um, the gift of prophecy to humans, and therefore bridge the gap between Zeus and humanity. The people of Delphi built a shrine over the crevice and appointed a woman to inhale the vapors and communicate with Apollo on their behalf. This priestess was called the Pythia, after the decaying python underground. She also became known as the Oracle of Delphi. For the most part, the Pythias were ordinary women with no special skills. The only requirement was a good reputation. The idea was that she needed to be very pure in order to communicate with Apollo. And so part of the purity was that she would become chaste. And I say become chaste because she need not have been chaste earlier in her life. She may well have been a woman who married and had children. But when she agreed to become the Pythia, she would not live with her husband any longer. She lived within the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi. The first oracles were teenage virgins, but the job proved too risky for the young girls, who were often molested by the men who came to Delphi. So the priests later decided that only older women would be appointed. These women, who served as the Pythia, often would serve until they died, so they would remain chaste then from that moment till the end of their lives. From all over the world, people flocked to Delphi to get what they believed was a message from God. Delphi became the center of the world. If one wanted to approach the oracle, one had to bring a goat, and the priests would sprinkle some water on the goat. If the goat started shaking, and shaking pretty violently, then it was an auspicious moment uh, to go and consult the oracle. If the goat did not shake, the god was, in, was letting you know that it wasn't a good moment. The Greek historian Plutarch was a priest at Delphi. He wrote about what happened when the Pythia was forced to prophesy at the wrong time. Her behavior became so erratic 
that she collapsed. And the priests and the inquirer came in to kind of see what was going on. They found her collapsed and kind of ran screaming away. And she passed away a few days after that. The oracle prophesied once a month for nine months out of the year in an underground chamber called the Adytan. In the temple of Apollo, this was the Holy of Holies. Only the Pythia and a priest were allowed inside, while lines of inquirers waited nearby. Each person was allowed one question. The priest then posed the question to the oracle. Intoxicated by the vapors, she fell into a trance and raved in ecstasy. Plutarch said that when the Pythia came out of these trances, it was like a dancer who had danced for a long time, or a runner who had finished a race. For centuries, these fumes were a mystery to scholars and scientists. Ancient sources describe a fragrant breeze that rose from the temple and covered the city of Delphi. And in the 1990s, geologists found two fault lines that crossed exactly at the center of Apollo's temple the spot where the oracle sat. Indeed, there are gases that could have been emitted from those clefts in the rock, and in particular one of the gases would have been ethylene, which is known to be a mild anesthetic and could well have induced a kind of trance. The Greeks believed that the Pythia was possessed by the spirit of Apollo. The priest then translated her words into poetic prophecy. It's up to humans to interpret correctly that what the god said so it is a matter of human choice whether they will understand and interpret correctly and make the right choice that accords with divine will as opposed to them you know obligedly following instruction the oracle's cryptic answers made it possible for her to be right most of the time if inquirers got the wrong interpretation that was their fault case in point the lydian king Croesus. He had designs to fight the Persians, and so he consulted the Oracle of Delphi and asked whether he should fight. Uh, and the response of the Oracle was that if he did fight, a mighty empire would fall. And he went ahead, thinking, great, I will conquer the Persians. But of course, what happened was that it was not the Persian Empire that fell, but his own. The first Roman emperor to consult the Oracle was Nero, and when he arrived in Delphi, the Pythia greeted him with a warning. Your presence here outrages the god you seek. The number 73 marks the hour of your downfall. Nero was so angry that he ordered the Pythia to be buried alive. But within the year, he too was dead. After being overthrown by a 73-year-old man. Oh, wow. Throughout the ancient world, the power of the oracle went unquestioned for more than a thousand years. Even, and this is very interesting, when the early Christian fathers start um, writing uh, about the oracle and cautioning against it, they don't disbelieve in the power of the oracle. Rather, what they see the problem being is that some kind of evil force, namely the devil, is the one uh, behind those prophecies. Over time, the oracle's reputation began to fade. An earthquake destroyed the temple of Apollo. It was later rebuilt, but the earthquake had changed the landscape at Delphi forever. The gas of the vapors 
are not as strong anymore, that they seem to have abated in some way. And so we may wonder whether something was getting blocked up. And so there might be a very practical reason that the oracle is in a bit of decline and that she is not able, that the Pythia is not able to get as many responses as she had been before. In AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian consulted another priestess of Apollo in the Greek city of Didyma. The oracle told him that the word of Apollo was being hindered by the just on earth. Diocletian's advisors told him the oracle was talking about the Christian. And later that year, he launched the bloodiest persecution in the history of the Roman Empire. But a decade later, the Christians rose to power in Rome, and the oracle's days were numbered. As Christianity spreads, and especially as there is a sort of legal mandate to stop going to pagan temples, then, of course, you're really talking about pretty much the end of the oracle at Delphi. In AD 380, the Roman Emperor Theodosius ordered the destruction of every pagan temple in the empire, including the one at Delphi. Thirteen years later, the oracle made her final statement. Tell the king, the fair wrought house has fallen. No shelter has Apollo. The fountains are now silent. The voice is still. It is finished. So pretty interesting, right? And much of that I didn't know until this week when studying for Act 16. So we've got um, a woman priestess who is groomed for this position. And they said at the height of her popularity, many times there was actually three Pythia that had to meet the demands of all the crowds coming to the Pythia to get an oracle and a, some kind of word of the future and divination. They paid large sums of money um, to receive this oracle. Well, beyond that, however, uh, there were actually lesser Pythia who would serve as the priestess of... Apollo, uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece, and uh, they would walk around and, and they would serve as like a lesser oracle of Delphi and give a word of divination or, or fortune telling to people who paid for a sum of money. Now, is it under the influence of these gases? Is it purely uh, chemical responses that these women had these uh, abilities to tell the future? Or is it, like it says in the, the documentary, more on the spiritual side, that maybe they were possessed by something um, and that gave them the ability to see into the future in the unseen realm. What do you think? Or is it both? Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up. It's actually, I was about to say, um, there, anyone who does psychedelics you're opening yourself up to something spiritually. You're lowering your, your inhibition for something and you're opening yourself up. So usually what happens is, you know, doing psychedelics uh, opens a, a gateway, so to speak, for the demonic forces to have authority over your life. And, and psychedelics um, are, that's a good question, Bob. I'm glad that you asked that question. Uh, the drug, Drugs that put you in a hallucinogenic state. So. Be, be very cautious of them. I know, I've, you know, sometimes they take the form of like DMT um, or LSD or different things like that. So 
Um, just stay away from, stay far away from that. Paul tells us over and over, be sober-minded, right? Be sober-minded. Well, um, let's keep reading a little bit. But, but before I do, I wanted to touch on this, this topic real quick. So you have all around Asia Minor this idea that there is the Oracle of Delphi, and she is the priestess of Apollo, and then she has lesser oracles all around her town, all around the towns in which you live. This may, and I'm not certain, this may give us a little bit more context. Some of the hard-to-read passages where Paul is talking about women being unallowed to speak in the gatherings. So if you think about it, if that is your religious context, and that's what you're coming from, is the Oracle of Delphi is the one who is the be-all and end-all, and she's the channel of Apollos. And what she says is gospel. Um, you can see how when you gather, if you're coming from that former life into the, into the local synagogue, um, there might be some imbalance going on there, but I'm not, I'm not certain. So let's keep reading here, now that we've kind of learned a, a little bit more of the historical context and religious context about these Delphi, the Delphi and the lesser Delphis. It says, once, when we were going to the place where the minion, the prayer group, gathered, we were met, verse 16, by a young woman who had in her the spirit of Python. What does your translation say? Divination. Divination. Cross it out. The Greek says the spirit of Pythia. The spirit of Pythia. She had, actually the Greek is Numa Pythona. She was inhabited by this spirit, whichever spirit inhabited the Oracle of Delphi. She is one of the lesser Delphis, or one of the lesser Pythias in that town. She, she speaks, quote-unquote, for Apollos, and people pay a lot of money to hear her speak. Okay? It's important that we know that. The Numa Pythona. It enabled her to predict the future. Sound familiar? She earned a lot of money for her owners to be telling fortunes. This girl followed behind Paul and the rest of us and kept screaming, These men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. You see, when the demonic realm comes in contact with those who are of the most, who are owned by the Most High, they have to be honest. They have to recognize where the authority lies. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32 kind of stuff. Look back at chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 with me real quick. Deuteronomy 32. She is, she is harking on that. Well, I should say the, the spirit that inhabits her. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. This is what your fathers did when I, uh, am I on the right verse? For they went up, uh, let me see, Deuteronomy 32, 8. I might be in the wrong verse here. But basically says, let me look at verse 18 in case I left off a of one. Basically says that God has established the, the boundaries of the nations and set them at their, verse 8. And I'm, oh, I'm in the wrong book. I'm in the wrong book. That would help if I went to Deuteronomy 32, not Numbers 32, verse 8. She's riffing on this. When the Most High, you hear that language? The Most High God gave each nation its inheritance. When he divided up the human race, he assigned the boundaries of peoples according to Israel's population. But the Lord's share was with his own people, and Yaakov, his allotted inheritance. She's saying, these people are servants of that Most High God. Not Zeus, not Apollos, the God of Israel. Verse 18, she kept this up day after day until Saul was greatly disturbed. And he turned and said to the, what do your translations have? Spirit. Spirit, not to the girl. See the difference? He's saying to the Numa Pithona, 
What is he saying to that spirit? In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, I order you to come out of her. And the Numa did come out at that very moment. But when her owner saw that what had come out of her was any, uh, did away with any further prospect of profit for them, they seized Saul and Silas and dragged them to the market square to face the authorities. You've got to remember, this is a well-entrenched Roman cult that is going on for thousands, I mean, for a thousand years at this point. They look at the Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi, and the Pythia as being the very voice of Apollos. And he just, like, decapitated that system by casting that spirit out of her. Bringing them to the judge, they said, these men are causing a lot of trouble in our city since they are Jews. What, are they do what, uh, what they are doing is advocating customs that are against the law for us to accept or practice. Since we are Romans, the mob joined in the attack against them. And the judges tore their clothes off of them in order to be flogged. And after giving them a severe beating, they threw them in prison, charging the jailer to guard them securely. And upon receiving such an order, he threw them into the inner cell and clamped their feet securely between heavy blocks of wood. So the Roman prisons had three compartments. And the inner cell was one in which it was like a dungeon where there was no light, there was no fresh air, it was completely dark, it was where people were put to die. That was the end of their life. But it says around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were singing, Mika Mocha Baelimat. I don't know. Verse 26, suddenly there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer awoke. And when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Do you see the little Passover language going on here? For he assumed that the prisoners had escaped, but Saul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. So calling for lights, the jailer ran in, began to tremble, and fell down in front of Saul and Silas. Then leading them outside, he said, Men, what must I do to be saved? Now that this guy was this prisoner, like he grew up in, in church and went to Sunday school, and he knew about salvation, he knew about the Romans' road, he knew all that stuff, and then he just backslid and became a Roman? No. So when he says, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't know anything about the God of Israel. What does that say about this man and what he's thinking at that moment? I'm about to die. You people are special. I oversaw you getting beat and flogged and I just locked you in prison. I'm about to die. What do I need to do to not die right now? Right? That's why he's falling down at their feet. What must I do to be saved? So they said, trust in the Lord Yeshua and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. Then, even at that late hour of night, the jailer took them and he washed off their wounds. Without delay, he and his people were all immersed. And after that, they brought them up to his house and they set food in front of them. And he and his entire household celebrated with having their coming to trust in God. Now again, there's a picture of Jews and Gentiles becoming one in Messiah. They're eating a meal together, right? Very unheard of for Orthodox observant Jews in the first century to eat a meal with a Gentile, even if they're a God-fearer. But remember that whole Acts 10 thing happened, right? It's okay, do it. So what do we see right after they accept and trust Yeshua as Messiah? What happens? What do they do? They're immersed, just like who? Lydia, just like Lydia. 
It just speaks to the importance and the urgency of immersion. Although it's not a requirement of our salvation, right? Talk to the other thief on the cross about that, right? But it does speak to the importance of the symbol that is immersion in our lives. If someone comes to faith in Messiah, we should make it a priority to oversee their immersion. So the next morning, the judges sent police officers with the order, release those men. The jailer told Saul, the judges sent word to release both of you. Come out and go on your way in peace. But Saul said to the officers, um, after flogging us in public when we hadn't been convicted of any crime and we're Roman citizens and they threw us in prison, no, they want to get rid of us secretly. No, let them come and escort us out themselves. <laughs> Paul's getting a little bit feisty, isn't he? Verse 38, the officers reported these words to the judges, who then became frightened when they heard that Saul and Silas were Roman citizens. It's illegal in Roman law. So they came and apologized to them. Then after escorting them out, requested them to leave the city. And from the prison, they went to Lydia's house. And after seeing and encouraging the brothers, they departed. So some lessons I drew from Acts 16 are the following. We must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Remember in there, there's two places where they had to change course, divert, right? The Spirit told them, don't go there. The Spirit of Yeshua said, go. So we have to be, we have to be willing to conform to that. And if you're anything like me, if you're stubborn and headstrong like me, that's a very difficult thing to do. Number two, I learned that God will lead us to godless people whose hearts are prepared for him, just like this Philippian jailer. But the enemy will attempt to thwart those plans, and things will get rough. All right? When possible, we should stand up for our civil liberties and be engaged in the political process of our nation. And nothing like the past two years has shown that to me. That who, is, who our sheriff is, who our uh, mayor is, um, who our governor is, that those are positions of great power. The last two years have exposed even more so to me. Now, I come from a place where I was like kind of checked out of the political system. And I was like, well, no, I don't want to be involved in what those pagans are doing and all this crazy stuff. But no, be engaged and be a, be a proponent of your civil liberties and be vocal about your civil liberties. Amen. Now, I'm not like... I'm not like putting an AR-15 on my back or, you know, like putting a gun rack in the back of my car or anything like that. But nothing has shown me in the past two years the importance and the blessing that is Amendment 2A of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution of the United States of America. The ability to carry firearms that are equal to that of the freestanding army of the United States of America. I think that that's a really big blessing. Don't get me wrong, like I, that's a last, last, last resort kind of thing. But we are, we are a second amendment away from becoming Australia or Canada. Right. Promise you that, okay? So be engaged in the political system. Go to protests if they're a righteous cause. Vote for righteous people if you can find them. Yeah. Be vocal about those things. It's important. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me say that the Republican Party has everything all together and is godly. Don't hear me say the Democratic Party has everything and is all together. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong in that. There, there is a lot of, there's a lot of money and a lot of corruption running through any political party in our country. But be engaged. Be aware. Repentance, like our Philippian jail, jailer uh, so aptly demonstrated, is just more than sorrow. What do I mean by that? He let them out of jail, right? He's, he, he accepts Yeshua as Messiah, but then he doesn't, 
He goes a step further, and what does he do? He washes their wounds and their feet. Then he feeds them. There are people who will repent, and really what they think they're doing is repenting, but what they're really doing is just apologizing because they got caught. You understand what I'm saying? Huh? Fear, yeah, absolutely. When you, true repentance is an apology, but then you're restoring what you stole. You understand what I'm saying? You're doing your, your best to restore the situation. That's repentance. Okay, my, my dad used to always say, sorry means I won't do it again. And if you do it again, it means you're a liar. <laughs> Let's read a few excerpts. Now, I need the guys up here who have the slips. Come up here and line up right here. If you have a slip of paper. We're going to read. Now, we just we left Paul off in Philippi, the city of Philippi. And we're going to close out with today's service. I think it's very fitting that we read just a few excerpts of Philippi. Guys, come up here quickly. Move faster than what you're doing. If you have a slip, come up here. It doesn't matter what order you're in. Stand right here. Just get shoulder to shoulder right here. I've asked these guys to read a little bit. Come up here, shoulder to shoulder. And what I'm going to do is walk down the line with the microphone so everybody can hear. Because Paul eventually writes a letter to this congregation in Philippi. And this letter is a beautiful letter of encouragement and edification. And I think we should pause here and read a little bit of this letter. I can get this microphone off of me. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but with humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Okay, I have like three to read. Um, page one. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is fi finally finished on, that, on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. On the contrary, make your requests known to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Verse 19. Moreover, my God will fill every need of yours according to his glorious wealth in union with the Messiah Yeshua. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. All right, thank you guys. Let's give it up for our readers. It's good. I think it's cool to, to hear the, Paul, the words of Paul are so timeless, aren't they? And to hear his, just a small excerpts of his letter to this congregation here in the city of Philippi where we just left him off. So next week we're going to cover Acts chapter 17. So be reading that throughout the week as many times as you want. Here's your homework. Uh, I want you to understand what this document is called the Didache and be able to um, maybe learn a little bit about how it influenced the early movement and the Christian faith. Let's close in prayer and then we'll do a quick Q&A for about five minutes. 
Abba Father, I thank you for men like Paul and men like Silas, who in times of adversity just praise you. Help me to be a man like that and have faith like that. Help me to exemplify true repentance when I need to show it. I pray all this in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. So what questions, real quick, do you guys say about five minutes? What questions do you have about this? Yeah, bring yeah. yeah. So um, traditionally, Luke is seen from Antioch. That's that's where he's traditionally seen from. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that I noticed was in verses twenty-six through thirty-four, mm -hmm. they're in prison. It seems to foreshadow the return of Christ, mm -hmm. in which there is an earthquake. People yeah. are set free. They're awoken from sleep, and then there is a meal. The, the son mm. of the yeah. So it seems to be a great foreshadowing there. That is a really good observation. So what he, for those who couldn't hear, what he's saying is like verses 26 to 34, it's kind of like a foreshadowing of the return of Messiah. There's an earthquake, there's a, um, there's a, a, a meal, um, there's a restoration, so to speak. So yeah, good observation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> Any, any, uh, that's okay because I'm a historic pre millennialist as well. So, any other observations you guys want to make? Anything else? Any questions you have about Acts chapter 16? You guys are quiet today. You, I think I scared you with the five minute thing, is what it is. Everybody has, everybody has a question, but they're like, no, we only have five minutes. I don't want to be the person to steal the time. But, yeah, Sarah. Uh, no, it was as if she had just been dancing for hours. So she's she's exhausted physically from being in this trance. Yeah, and um, and then while she was in these trances, she would give an utterance of some kind. And here's the other thing too: a false prophet isn't always wrong. You see what I'm saying? The the people were spending lots of money to go see the Oracle of Delphi. Apparently, she was right a time or two. It could have just been luck. Or it could have been that she was possessed by a spirit that had the ability to tell the future. But the true test of a false prophet is, yeah, if, it, if it's false, but also if they lead us away from the commandments of God. All right, it's those two things together. I don't want you to be fooled by someone who can tell the future. I want you to be, I I want you to be sober-minded about that. There are lots of people who can tell the future and they get it right. But if they tell the future and lead you away from the commands of, of Hashem, of God, run away. Yes. And once a month. Mm -hmm. So was it for one day or was it? Uh, is it a uh, seventh day of the, every month for nine months? Three months out of the year, it was believed that Apollos left the city of Delphi. Was that during the winter? Or the during the winter, yes. Yeah, there was no oracles during the winter for Delphi. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah reminded me of something. Uh, when you were reading through it, you said Numapithia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seems to sound really familiar to what Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Talking about the scriptures, he says they are pneumatheon, yeah. and they are breathed by God. Mm -hmm. uh, so he may be comparing and contrasting the truth of scripture versus the truth of some of these uh, oracles, yeah. things like that that would have been in the Greco-Roman world. And then the the Holy Spirit is the pneuma hagion. So you have like all these different pneumas, and that's why John says to test all the pneumas, <laughs> test the spirits. Be cognizant of it. Yeah, Crystal. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Possible. I don't know though. Yeah, it's possible. I don't know because there's. I mean, there's people who die very successfully, very wealthy, and very notable who are very godless people who probably seek the fortunes of tarot cards or palm readers and those sorts of things, and uh, it can bring them great fortune. But uh, obviously, where they're at in eternity is yet to be determined because of their condition of their heart and their godlessness or their, their idolatry. So, I don't know. It's a good, good question, though. Any other questions or comments, guys? I thank you for your attention. Yeah, you have one. I have a question that's not related to this. Sure. Um, where can I get baptized at? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, We've got a couple of different options, and I, we'd be honored to help you with that. Um, let's talk after this, and um, we have some really cold water we can dump you in. <laughs> but that's awesome. I'm glad that you, uh, that is something that you're getting. Well, you said it was yeah. warm. Yeah, it was very warm. Yeah, but if, Amber, if you look at the photos on the other side of the wall over here, there's a, you can get a glimpse of what this cold water is, that where we normally do our immersions and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You can either do the warm but muddy water, or you can do the clear but cold water. So that's our two options. But yeah, you want to talk? Just come up here as we're done with service, and we'll talk about it. And you and you and um, Matt want to talk about it? All right. Here's God. Let's. Uh, yeah. Please. Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of people were doing, also, he was giving advice, and a lot of people were doing what he'd say to do, get themselves practically bankrupt. Yeah. And then also, you know, they had cancer, drink, this, drink water every day. Oh, mercy. And then, you know, two months later, they're dead. Yeah. So, so that's making God look like a liar. Yeah, and no, it profanes the name of God, and that's why in Deuteronomy 13, the the uh, the sentence associated with getting a prophecy wrong and speaking presumptuously in the name of the Lord is, you're dead, right? And if we did that nowadays, there'd be way less YouTube prophets in the world. Let me tell you a quick story. I know everybody's eyes are rolling in the back of their head here. I'll tell you a quick story. There was a friend of mine, a very close friend and colleague of mine, who was attending a church who was pastored by a man. I'm not going to name his name. This man said that. There are certain women, and he actually he actually described her, who are going to be married before September of this year, and she got all excited about it because she was she was uh, in her mid twenties at the point, and she was just desperately looking for a husband, and she tried different things and didn't you know just things didn't work out, and this guy got her hopes up, and he said the Lord's going to send you a man by September of this year. I just heard a word from him. Well, September thirtieth rolls around, and she's still single. And uh, she's like, and then she starts self-doubting. Did I do something wrong? Did I, you know, did I miss my opportunity? Did I have, did I, did he cross my path? But I didn't have enough faith to believe that it was him and all these other things. And I'm like, no, no, he's a false prophet. You know, that's the simple explanation. Well, long story short, this guy shoots up in popularity to where he's internationally known. I mean, talking like five, six years later. And he's like my age. And, uh, and, and he predicts something huge and very, very obvious, and puts it all over the internet. 
and then it, it doesn't go the way you predicted. Then he has to come out publicly and say that he's ending his public ministry. Well, here's the thing. The first prediction in the name of the Lord, if we were living in the times of Deuteronomy 13, homeboy would not have round two. It'd be lights out, right? So walk in fear of the Lord. When you speak in his name, I recommend you quote the scripture verbatim when you do. You can't go wrong. You got me? Yeah. Yeah. That's extremely destructive and extremely unbiblical. Yeah, and I, I full, fully and wholeheartedly renounce that.